0: Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes!
1: Again, have to be careful of the speed.
0: What a comeback season for Hal Sutton.
1: Come right back towards the hole. 17 years later, Hal Sutton is the Players' Champion.
2: everybody, welcome to another Be The Right Club Today podcast. I'm super excited, honored to be able to uh, introduce our next guest, Dr. Bob Rotella, one of the world's leading sports psychologists. He was actually, I was telling him off air, he, uh, I, I probably read seven or eight of his books. Um, two of my favorites were golf is not a game of perfect and putting out of your mind. Dr. Bob Rotella, welcome to the podcast. Well, great to be with you guys.
1: So Bob, yeah, what have you been up to? Same old, same old. Just working with players. Uh, just now we're getting into basketball season. So I, I work with Kentucky and Virginia and the University of Miami and quite a few NBA guys. But uh, most of my time is with golf. People still coming here for a couple of days and still spend a lot of time on the phone and same old thing, really, huh? Having oh. a ball doing it. So well, no, I know that. Go ahead,
2: Jay. Oh, I'm sorry. How? So I was going to say, Doc, do the do you approach athletes differently depending on their sport?
1: Well, yeah, you approach them differently. The biggest difference is when a golfer calls and comes here, they want to be here. When you're working with a team, you know, you never, you don't know if everybody on the team is in love with the idea of talking about their attitude. Some are, some aren't. But uh, you know, usually, I only work with a team if the coach is really into it and really buys into it, Um, you know? So, I mean, but everyone's different. I mean, you have to, there's some differences just in terms of getting their attention and getting them to understand what they need to do. But yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of things that everyone needs to do. I mean, everyone needs to have confidence. Everybody needs composure. Everyone needs to learn how to focus. Everyone needs to learn how to stay in the moment. But in a team, You know, the biggest difference in a team is you have to buy into the team concept. And when you decide you want to play a team sport, you basically decide that the team is more important than the individual. And I really like to help guys get into the idea that you have to star in your role on the team, whatever the role the coaches have for you. You not only have to accept it, but you have to star in it. And all that means is you want to do a better job at that role than anybody's ever done in history. And you know, if you can get a whole bunch of guys to do that and you have some talent, you can have a really great year, and uh, so that's that's fun golf. The good news is you're all on your own, and the tough part is you're all on your own. Um, so I mean, it's they're different, but very similar. I mean, you know, it's sport is sport. I mean, you're going to put yourself out there on the line, I mean, you practice something. You've learned how to do something. You've seen yourself do it in practice, and now you're going to go to competition and see if you can trust yourself and let yourself do it on an important day.
0: Well, Bob, uh, I know that when golfers show up at your house there, which I've done myself, you know, we're, we're usually at a fragile state when we do that. Uh, why don't you tell the audience how fragile professional golfers really are? from Dr. Bob Rotella's standpoint?
1: Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, most of the people i work with have big, big dreams, and they've got big ambition in their head, and they're taking on some really difficult challenges, and they're at a level where they're only competing against the other most talented, dedicated, highly committed people in the world, and the world pretty much only looks at outcome. You know, I mean, in the eyes of the world, you're either a winner or you're, or you're not. And they might call you a bunch of different things. Um, And if you win, they tell you how wonderful you are and kiss your butt. And if you don't, they want to ask you what's wrong. And, you know, like if you come in second or third on tour and you go home and you start practicing, all everyone wants to ask you about is the one putt you missed. You know, you might have shot 22 under and they want to ask you about one putt and ask you what's wrong with your putting. And so, I mean, you can't help but be a bit fragile. And I mean, you're dealing with doubt, you're dealing with fear and you're dealing with, on the other hand, being unbelievably confident. And when you're locked in and you're really feeling good, it's, I mean, I don't think other people can identify with how clear your mind is when you're good. Like I remember the last time you were at my house, you shot 61 at the Keswick golf course we played at and you made 11 birdies and no parts, you know, and it's like, it was so easy. It was ridiculous. And and I don't think people can understand how quiet and clear your mind is when it's really, really good. And so, I mean, when you're getting scrutinized and then you got somebody up in the broadcast booth, usually who doesn't dare play anymore or doesn't want to play anymore for whatever reason, uh, they're up there being told by the producer that you got to be critical and judgmental and You got to tell them everything they did wrong and pretend they know what they're doing wrong. And, you know, it's just, that's what you're dealing with. And I think, you know, they're fragile, but I think most players come to grips with the fact that, well, as long as they're talking about you, you're probably going to be more well-known and you're going to make more money in endorsements and there's some benefits to it, but do you need to develop some thick skin to deal with it? Yeah. Because I keep telling people they're never going to understand I mean, they, they don't really want to understand, that maybe they can't understand if they haven't been there. Um, I mean, I'm really intimately involved with lots of players. Um, you know, I think we've had 83 major wins now, and lots of hundreds and hundreds of wins. And yet, I don't know if I can play my share of golf tournaments and play a lot of tournaments. Um, but I don't know. If, I don't know what it's like to be on national TV with the whole world watching. I don't know what it's like to be Hal Sutton and have everyone since you're a kid tell you how great you're going to be, you how awesome you are and how talented you are and then put you on a pedestal so then they can give you grief if you don't do everything they thought you ought to be doing. And so I keep telling people, you know, potential is something that hasn't happened yet. Potential is somebody else's made up impression, uh, you know, of, of what you have for talent. And, What we're really do is we spend our whole life chasing our potential and trying to find out what we can do. Like, heck, I still don't know what I can do as a sports psychologist with players. I mean, I was a golfer at 19 or 20, actually know what their potential is. But, you know, it's like you're dealing with all that stuff. And, of course, late bloomers, they have the opposite. They have nobody ever telling them how good they are. No one ever tell them they have potential and they would die to have somebody tell them they have potential and they spend their whole life trying to, they have to believe it long before anyone else does. So, I mean, they're very different, you know, from where they're coming from, by the way, before I forget the other, you know, the name of your podcast is beautiful and obviously TV loves it when they do the broadcast at TPC. It's such a great line, be the right club today. And you said it with such intensity. It was just beautiful. But I always say that the best story from you that week, I remember going into your press conference and I just, I'm so happy for you. I mean, you just beat Tiger Woods in his prime on a week where the course was really set up tough. It was really firm and fast and difficult. And he was in his prime and you took him on and and beat him. And it was pretty awesome. So I go sit in the back just to listen and hell tells the story. They said, well, uh, hell, how were you able to believe you could beat Tiger Woods on a championship layout in the prime of his career? And you looked at the guy and said, you know, last night, before I went to bed, I got down on my knees to say my prayers like I always do. And in the middle of my prayers, it hit me. I was praying to God. I wasn't praying to Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods must not be God. And I said, that is so good. And I remember my first thought was, "God, I wish I had told him that <laughs> that was really good, and it was you know, and I remember being just so proud and happy for it because you know I, again, you can only imagine what it means. I had some idea what it meant to you, but you know i I know in sport that would be the ultimate you know to take on a person when they're at the top of their game, being praised by the whole world in a huge tournament like that the players, and and you take them on and you play so good. And I remember you talking about how you had mentally prepared for Tiger to Eagle, the 16th hole, and when he did it, didn't bother you one bit because you were ready for it. And so much of my life is getting athletes to anticipate everything and anything that could possibly happen and be prepared for it. I mean, that's what we do in every other sport, but a, a lot of golfers have never been told to do it. And I think it's a big, big piece of the puzzle. And that's why people are able to not be bothered or upset. I mean, you know, one of my lines is, you're unstoppable if you're unflappable. Well, you were still so unflappable that day. And a lot of it was you were prepared for it. I mean, you were ready for the moment. And obviously, you had no problem believing that you could win. And that's why when you hit that last shot and made that quote, it's just beautiful. And you hit it so good to go with it, Well, I I
0: appreciate walking down memory lane there with you, Bob. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I was going to ask you a question. You said something about the difference between a player that had all the potential and the whole world seeing it and had all the expectations for him. And then, on the other hand, the late bloomer that had to believe in it himself before anyone else did. Which guy's
1: better off? Well, I I think what happens for the late bloomer, I mean, this is at least their perception, is that, you know, this wasn't given to me. Um, It didn't come by easily to me. So I had to really work my tail off for everything I got. And I think they learned to take a lot of pride in the fact that they had to make themselves into a golfer. I mean, they usually feel like I had to outwork people, whether they did or didn't, they feel that way. They feel like they had to sustain the belief a lot longer before they got results. And they feel like they had a delay gratification. And it develops into a heck of a work ethic and a patience and persistence. That becomes a lot of their hallmark. And, you know, they kind of feel like they had to develop a a big heart and a, a mental toughness to get there. And I think on the other hand, you have the child prodigies that came by it early. Um, you know, they feel the pressure of expectation and that and the difference is they're kind of feel like they're in an only can lose situation. Like if I don't live up to these expectations, they're gonna see me as a failure and a disappointment. Whereas the late bloomer says, anything I do, I look unbelievable. Because people are gonna say, How in God's name did you ever make it? Because their whole life they were told, What makes you think you could be a tour player? Or what makes you think you could play on tour? You know. Where'd you get that crazy idea or what makes you believe, you know, it's like you just don't have it. And so, I mean, it's very different and they come from very different places and it's a very fascinating thing. And, and the standard that's acceptable by the world is totally different. I mean, one guy wins one tournament and everyone's praising him and saying that's just unbelievable. How did you ever do it? Tell me about your attitude. Cause you must have a great mind in order to believe in yourself as short as you hit it or as lousy as you hit it and the early bloomer is like (laughs) if you don't win you must have a weak mind you know and it's like and, and they're gonna blame it on that you know and it's like i mean that's that's a tough thing to deal with when someone's telling you it must be something on the inside and by the way in a lot of my books i've written about the fact that real talent you can't take a picture of real talent and i tell people okay so i'm a sports psychologist but I don't know if it's in the mind or the heart or the soul or the human spirit. I just know it's inside of people. Like you becoming a great player. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the pictures and beliefs you have in your head, but I mean, it takes a lot of heart where you have to dig down deep. Um, There's some soul in it. (laughs) It's, It's a lot of stuff that's inside of us that really a camera can't take a picture. And here's the problem because TV takes a picture, they pretend to the world that they can see it, what talent looks like. And they pretend they know what talent looks like. Like right now, you know, if you hit it really long, that means you got talent in the eyes of television. And it's a small part of it. You know, the guys that are long, that are really good, all have a lot of the other stuff. And, but because you can't take a picture of it, it kind of gets overlooked. And, you know, I've always said, if we had a camera, they could take a picture of what's going on inside your head and put it next to the picture of your golf swing or your putting stroke, or your pitching stroke. We would very quickly see, Oh, their swing changed because their head changed or their thoughts changed and it plays a huge role. And we'd be a lot more honest about the game right now. When the swing changes, we just talk about the swing changes. Um, but you know, I I think players know why it changed and have a pretty good idea. I mean, it's just a little bit of doubt. Like, that's a tricky thing trying to explain to people because the the public says, well, when their stroke changed, were they scared to death? No, they just had a little bit of doubt. I mean, versus, and it's, it's relative to being unbelievably clear. Like, I can't even imagine how clear you were on that last shot, you know, that your podcast is named after. It's like nothing in the world exists but that target. And it's like, it's a beautiful thing and but it's very hard to get there all the time and it's and no one does you know what i mean i mean even the very best i mean i, I don't care what sport it's in. i think michael jordan said he's probably gets there in the in that place less than 10 percent of the time and he really doesn't know how to get there so i mean it's it's not something you can just do by will i i think a lot of becoming a great golfer is how good do you play when you're not in the so-called zone it's like can you dig it out of the ground can you fight and hang in there and find a way to get in the hole and so i mean that's what's neat about the game
2: doc my my next question was going to be about the zone um we talk a lot about you know golf's a roller coaster but we kind of break it down into golf you've got your physical roller coaster your golf swing but then there's also a mental roller coaster and there's your there's going to be ups and downs with both and our in a perfect world we kind of match those up and we're we're at ups when we're physically hitting it well and we're also mentally locked in and that's when you see you know how hit the shot on on 18 to be the right club today or the even the drive on 18 where he piped it right down the middle there was no doubt at all right how do you you know we know we're never going to peak all the time with our golf swing it's impossible right we're we're just never going to hit it perfect all the time But from the sports psychologist we talked to, and you just kind of hinted at this, you're not going to be in the zone. You can't get there all the time. But how can you stay close? How can you how can you strive to be great mentally all the time?
1: I think you have to decide ahead of time. uh, Like, you know, it's like, where do I want my head? You know, what do I want going on in my mind behind the ball when I'm picking a club and a shot? And then it's like, I'm going to totally be committed to that decision as I'm walking into the ball. And then you have to know in advance where you want your mind. And it's really quiet where nothing exists, but where you want the ball to go when you're over it. And then you got to know you're going to accept it wherever it goes after you hit it, because you did everything you could to give it your best chance. That's what we can do all of the time. Some of the time you slip into this made up Place called the zone, um, that really we don't have that much control over. Over we we can do everything we get we can to have it happen, but I I know even let, let alone the players I work. I think I can't remember now if there's ten or eleven guys that have shot in the fifties on tour, and six or seven of them I was working with when they did it, and I was working with Furyk when he shot fifty nine and fifty eight. The lowest I've ever shot was 62, which is a course record at my home course. And I remember afterwards, the guys asking me about it, and I said, I have no idea. I don't remember anything. It was so easy. I I don't remember reading putts. It was just so easy. It just happened. I remember I scored 37 points, which is the highest I scored in a college basketball game. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's like you're in Never Never Land. You're in some land we can't even describe. I mean, so so that's bizarre to people, like, okay, you teach people how to think, and then you're telling me the ideal is to not think at all, where your mind is so quiet, it's so unconscious that you don't even know what you're doing, and it just happens. I go, yeah, that's pretty much it, and that's what's hard to understand, and a lot of people go to school, and they develop this unbelievable, almost addiction to thinking consciously. And you got to go in competition and quiet your mind down and just trust your training. It's like, I've done all this training on my golf swing or my technique in whatever sports you're in. Now we got to go play like with the basketball teams. Like right now, early in the season, they'll be learning a new offense and a new defense. And they're all thinking way too much. And it affects how well they're able to flow and play in about another six weeks. It'll start becoming automatic. And all of a sudden, teams start playing really, really great basketball. And but, it, but it doesn't happen until you get to that automatic level. And that's why, that's why, you know, golfers get really good routines that are really simple. I mean, I want people to be very reactive. I don't want people doing I I don't want a lot. I don't want thought between looking at your target and and swinging the club or starting your stroke. I mean, everyone always it, it's fascinating. Everyone always says. Golf is harder than other sports because it's not a reaction sport. And I would say, well, then let's make it a reaction sport if that's what makes other sports easy. Uh, Is there a rule that says you can't just unconsciously react to a target? Everyone says no. I said, well, if you think that's what makes other sports easier, then take less time in between looking at your target and starting your swing. Um, Be more reactive, which is really being athletic. I I don't care what sport I'm working with. We're trying to be reactive and unconscious. I mean, I've had I worked with the Eagles when they won the Super Bowl, and I remember one of their best players. Um, you know, he told me my goal with my pregame music was to become an idiot by the time the game started. And we're a bunch of us sitting around talking about it because I was talking about being unconscious. We said, "Okay, explain." He goes. I didn't want to think. I wanted to look with my eyes and instinctively react. I didn't want to look and then think and react because if I thought it was too late. And I mean, so the conscious brain gets in the way um, of a lot of athletic performance. And I think you have to learn to trust your, your subconscious or your unconscious or your athletic brain. Really, and That's ultimately what we're after. That's the reason we train so we don't have to think about it, which is why in an ideal world, you wouldn't change teachers too often, you know, because every time you change teachers, you kind of go back to being a beginner, you know I mean? And I've written in some of my books, a beginner is unconsciously incompetent. In other words, they're very unconscious, doing everything wrong. An intermediate performer is becoming consciously competent. An advanced performer is unconsciously competent. And that's where you want to be, you know, when you're out in the golf course, really taking on the world.
0: That's the perfect question now. Talk about the yips, because when you've got the yips, your brain is on fire.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the honest truth is all the yips are is you having bad thoughts when you're over the ball. I mean, no one's ever gotten the yips if they were just seeing the shot they want. So the simple answer is, you know, you got to get your mind quiet and stop thinking. I mean, you have to just look and react without any concern about the outcome it's interesting like you know people say mo norman you know had all these issues and but he 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 was pretty brilliant um, he called it the state of mind he wanted to be in focused indifference which meant he was into his target you've heard if you've heard him when he's hitting golf balls he just says target 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 but he was smart enough to understand you want to be into the target but unconcerned about whether or not the ball goes there I mean, if you went out back and played catch with a baseball with your friend, you would just look at the glove and throw it. You wouldn't go, God, I got to make sure I hit his glove. If you went out and threw a football around, like I always use the example, I played quarterback in high school. I said, I had four different receivers and no one ever asked me how I knew how far to lead different guys who ran at different speeds. But I did it. You know, how does a shortstop know how hard and when to throw the ball the first that it gets there a half a step before the runner hits the bag? So in those sports, we weren't overtopped, you know, and we just did it. What happens with the yips, it begins with people learning too much about their technique that they didn't need to know. And then people start telling them how important putting is. And, that, and, and so I, I want my players to totally eliminate thoughts such as you got to make this one. You need to make this one. This one's really big. This one's really crucial. This one's really important. Can't afford to let this one get away. All this golf junk, I call it, that you got to get out of your system. But the simple answer is, if all you're doing is looking where you want it to go without any concern about the outcome or contact, if it's pitching, well then you know how to do it. Like all of our juniors, like I've got a junior academy, you got a junior academy. Um, I mean, we tell the kids with pitching, um, just clip the grass, you know, and the kids go, oh and they immediately pitch the ball so good it's ridiculous you know and i mean it's like so easy for little kids until people start a debate about the correct way to pitch and what's happened in the last 20 years i mean like when i first came out on tour there wasn't a lot of information about pitching you know and people just pitched it good and then people started having a war over putting and pitching and it was like unbelievable how different different instructors wanted you to pitch it the ball position was different how you gripped it was different how close you stood it was different how you take it away is different what you do on the forward and all of a sudden it got hard (laughs) and I mean but I mean all you have to do is start I use the example sometimes when I write books I'll go someplace to give a talk and there'll be 500 books in my hotel room to sign and they'll pick them up in the morning well you sign 400 and you're so unconscious, it's unbelievable. And you get to the last 10 and all you have to do is have a little thought like, God, don't misspell your name on any of these last because I don't have any extra books. And all of a sudden your handwriting gets careful and tight. And all of a sudden it's hard to spell your name. Uh, years ago, I did a program for the National Stutters Association. And I was amazed to find out that at that time, now this was 40 years ago, um, something like 99 and 9 tenths percent of the stutters in the world were male because we put pressure on little boys who had any difficulty with speaking at an early age and they became self-conscious of it and they started to think before they spoke and all of a sudden they had trouble doing something as natural as talking. Little girls they didn't speak well well it won't affect their ability to make a living they don't need to make it be okay and all of a sudden Eventually they just learn how to talk correctly. Um, but all you have to do is get self-conscious and then fear a bad result and you can become a stutterer or a stammerer. And that's why, like, when we were a kid, Mel Tillis, when he sang, he was confident. And when he spoke, he stuttered. And so, I mean, it's very task-specific, just like it is in golf. I mean, you can have a part of your game that you're unbelievably confident and a part of your game where you start having bad thoughts. And a lot of times bad thoughts in golf are related to worrying too much about what other people are going to think. But if you're on national TV, you talk about being fragile. If you're on national TV and someone's going to rip you to shreds, you know, and say you're less of a man or something, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I sometimes when I give talks, I, I begin by saying, I want to just talk to the men in the audience. The women are like, What do you mean? And I go, Well, I just want to explain to the men that um, if you miss a short putt or pitch. You do not become less of a man. You do not leave, lose your man parts. It never happens. I've never seen it fall off. You know, it's okay. Uh, and somehow women don't tend to think that they're less of a woman if they miss a putt. So they putt everything out. You know, and we get a good laugh about it. But it's, you know, there's something to do. Men, as a whole, uh, and I think it's pretty good generalization. We have a lot of our manhood attached to our sport performance. And we, it's a big deal to us, you know, and we tend to think we're more of a man if we're good at sport and we're less of a man if we're not. And it has a big impact on us. And, it, you know, and we see it in every sport. I mean, it's always the easy parts. You know, like in basketball, it's at the free throw line or sometimes guys get the hit in basketball with a wide open layup. I mean, baseball, second baseman and catchers get it. Uh, football players the quarterback can get it sometimes on short easy passes but give them a 50 yarder down the field and they just turn it loose and it's a piece of cake Uh, I've worked with bowlers where to be a great bowler you've got to throw it over the edge of the gutter for them it's throwing a gutter ball I mean it's like I got to throw it over the edge of the gutter in order to throw a strike but I don't want to shoot a gutter ball on national tv so I mean it's we're beautiful human beings, aren't we? You know, what I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, that's that's what makes it, it makes it awesome. But but I, I, what I admire—it's interesting. People tell me, "Well, I don't want to make a fool of myself. I don't want to embarrass myself." And I always say, "Well, you can't embarrass yourself if you dare tee it up and post a score. The only people ought to be embarrassed are the people who don't dare tee it up. I mean, all the people who would like to play in a tournament but don't play because they're afraid they might play bad." look bad, I go, those are the only people, ought to be embarrassed. I mean, but if you tee it up, I admire you. I mean, and anybody who understands it would admire you, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Well, Bob,
0: I hope it's already come out to all the listeners out there. The reason why you're so popular is you are so practical. You, I mean, you speak a common man's language that's easy to understand, and you've got it down, Pat. It's why I love going to see you. Uh, I always felt like you helped me, and uh, I again love hearing how practical you are
1: with all your thoughts. I appreciate it. that's certainly been one of my goals. You know, i I was lucky. Hell, I I had a cousin in Staten Island, New York, named Sal Soma, who was a legendary football coach at Nodorf High School, and he and Vince Lombardi were best friends. They did clinics for seventeen years. Most people don't know it, but Lombardi, his only other head job other than the Packers was 17 years as a head coach at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey. And they did clinics together all over that region of the country. And every time he'd come and visit, I'd be the only person in the family who wanted to hear his stories about him and Lombardi. And they were all about attitude. So that's kind of how I got into attitude at an early age. And well, they were trying to make it understandable for high school athletes. And then I got to be the quarterback and the guard on the basketball team pitcher on the baseball team. And so you, and I was always a captain. So you got to spend a lot of time in coaches offices and they were always talking about attitude and getting guys to believe in themselves. And they're always talking about gamers and practice players. And how can we get the practice players to become gamers? And how can we get the gamers to be a little more interested in practice? And then I spent five summers teaching swimming at an institution Were special needs kids in Vermont, and they had the best attitudes ever. All they did, they could talk all day about the only good thing that was happening in their life and never talked about, you know, being mentally handicapped or retarded physically uh, or mentally. And they just were living in an institution, and all they would talk about all day was getting swimming lessons from local athletes. They were so lucky, and that's what they talk about all the time. And that was a huge, it had a big impact. And then I coached at my old high school. And then I coached at the University of Connecticut. I coached lacrosse. Um, I mean, when I was 22, I was coaching kids, you know, about six months younger than me at the University of Connecticut. And I coached basketball at the University of High School all the time I was going to grad school, studying sports psychology. So every day I was like, how is this useful? How can I use this with the team and with my players? And then I coached at the University of Virginia for several years before I started a doctoral program and started working with all the team. So it was always about my my quest wasn't to show everyone how smart I was, smarter, was it was to help athletes perform better you know in competition because you know that's what it's about and that's what I've always loved and uh, you know other than my wife and family I don't you know I mean golf I mean sport has been what I loved. I mean golf was kind of my later love. I I loved team sports growing up but I was lucky I got the caddy for Bobby Locke a lot. Bobby Locke his wife, amazingly, was from my hometown of Rutland, Vermont. And he would spend a lot of time there in the summer. Uh, I still have a set of his clubs he gave me hell. And on his irons, he has the claret jug stamped on the back and four stars representing his four wins. <laughs> he did it wow. before the, the RNA patented it and stopped people from doing it. But, um, you know, he was probably the greatest putter ever. And he told me that when he was 15 years old, He went to the best professional golfer in South Africa. I forget what his name was now. And he asked him for advice. He said, I want to be a professional golfer. What's your advice? He said, design your life around the state of relaxation. And so Bobby Locke looked at me and said, so I never did anything the rest of my life that would produce tension or pressure in my body. Everything I did from that day forward was to stay relaxed and at ease. And boy, I'll tell you what, he would hit about two bags of shag balls down the 18th fairway play 18 holes, and then go into the clubhouse and eat on someone else's dime and drink on someone else's dime till about an hour before the club closed. Then he would go out to his car and get a ukulele, come into the clubhouse and play the ukulele and sing to the guys, and then he'd go stay in someone's hotel for free. But, I mean, yeah, he was about the most laid-back, easygoing human being I've ever been around. But at that age, you know, I wasn't overly impressed because he, physically he wasn't too impressive a figure. But he could really play golf.
2: So, so Dr. Ryder Cup was last week. Um, perfect, perfect little segue because you kind of hit in on this a little bit. How do we how do you teach your players to control? You've, you've mentioned shaky hands in some of the books I've read. And how do, you, how do you teach players to calm their nerves down at the, you know, the highest pressure situations?
1: Well, it's a great question. I mean, it's funny, we, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about nerves. We, we talk about excitement, We talk about adrenaline. We talk about being juiced. We talk about this is where we want to be because in golf, the better you're playing, the lower you're shooting, the closer you are to winning, the more you're in contention, the more of that stuff you have going on inside you. So it's actually what we're chasing. I mean, this is what we live for. Uh, It's why we put money on our games during the week to try to bring out some of that. But There's nothing that gets it going like being in a competition and having a chance. I tell guys, if you want to be relaxed totally physiologically, um, play really badly on Thursday and Friday and tee off at 7 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday, and you'll be just relaxed and you'll have none of that stuff going on inside. The other things I remind people is, you know, we call them butterflies, not demons, And when butterflies land on flowers, they open up and welcome the butterflies because they're going to make the flower more beautiful. And so, I mean, you've got to welcome them and love them and be glad they're there. Now, the other thing you see is with your long game, when you've got a lot of that stuff going on inside you, you tend to hit the ball further. And with experience, you learn how much further. And with your short game, you tend to hit it shorter. So with pitching and putting, you tend to have to move the target back because most people tend to leave it short with that part of their game when they got butterflies, So it's different for long game versus short game, but you kind of learn from experience. Um, The other example I use a lot is, I said, you know, if you had a date tomorrow night with the best-looking woman you've ever seen in your life, or if you're a gal, the best-looking guy you've ever seen, um, and you pick that person up, and you had a bunch of butterflies and we're feeling the same thing would you go oh this is going to be a terrible night what's wrong with me no you'd probably say this is going to be really good tonight man this is going to be awesome and so it's amazing and what we find is physiologically whether you're in love or excited or saying it's nervous or scared is just how you label the very same physiology in other words response is the same in both situations, we just label it differently based on our perception of the situation. So for an athlete, you have to learn to love it. I mean, this is what you live for. Um, trying to keep your mind quiet. And the more quiet you get your mind over a few holes, your body's going to calm down a bit. Thank goodness. But I mean, the bottom line is it's part of being an athlete. I mean, you're going to have it. And you better embrace it and you better love it. and you know, it's kind of like we'd like to make the other guys nervous. We don't want to be the ones that are nervous. I mean, so, I mean, we just talk about it as excitement, and this means I'm playing really good. Um, you know, when you get a chance to break 60 and you're going deep, you're going to have some of that stuff going on inside, and it, it helps you. That's why people break world records in the Olympics. Um, that's why a lot of the greatest moments in sports have happened in really big games. That's why, like, when Hal hits that shot on 18 and be the right club today, I mean, he's in a wonderful place to be able to hit that shot. Um, but, I mean, you have to love it. If you spend your whole life trying to avoid feeling that way, it's going to hurt your development as an athlete, that's for sure. So be so, my quick- Go ahead.
0: All the great players that you've worked with, is there a common denominator?
1: Well, I I think the common denominator is when they're at their best, there's a level of confidence and self-belief that is so great that it's hard for other people to understand because there's a total absence of doubt at that moment, that day or that week or that period of their life. There's no doubt. There's no fear. You're just lost in your own little world. And you feel like you can do anything you want to do with the golf ball. And it's, it's like winning isn't even that big a deal. It's like, well, I knew I was going to win before it started. And it, the problem is, and I've tried to write about it in a lot of my books, and I've, I use like a word like inner arrogance because that sounds a little better. But, you know, like in basketball, we talk about playing with a swagger. Or some people, it's being cocky as all get out. And but what I want is I want players to be unbelievably confident when they're on the golf course, and when they leave the golf course with their family and friends. I want you to remember just because you're the greatest player in the world, it doesn't mean you're bigger than life, better than life, or more important than anyone else in life. You're just a great golfer. Um, but I mean, so I mean, confidence. We the world does not like to hear about a whole lot, um, and a lot of people I work with. When you start talking about it they start worrying, well, I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want everyone to hate me. Uh, I don't want to be an ass. And I'm like, why do you think everyone is really confident as a jerk? You know, and, and a lot of people have to really confront that and deal with it because a lot of people have been brought up to think confident people are, are jerks. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You just told me you want to win a major championship against all the other best players in the world, which means – I have to be the best player in the world. Your confidence level has to match that. So you can't tell me this is your dream and then tell me that you you don't want to believe in yourself. Now, whether you want to tell the world how much you believe in yourself is another thought. And it's interesting how, like, in this book that came out last week, my latest, Make Your Next Shot Your Best Shot, I tell a story um, about this topic. And it's, I was at the Oakmont U.S. Open. And a golf magazine calls me up and says they, or actually it was a sport magazine, calls me and says they want to do an interview on Tuesday. I said, okay, I'll meet you at 4 o'clock. So I go there to meet them. I said, what do you want to talk about? To no surprise, they want to talk about Tiger Woods. You know, i like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Heard this before. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? Um, well, all these young players are emulating Tiger Woods. And so I'm going to have fun with it immediately. I go, what are you talking about? Emulating Tiger Woods well, they're all working harder than golfers have ever worked before. And they're all working out with trainers like no one's ever done before. So I immediately go, well, Ben Hogan probably practiced harder than Tiger Woods and everybody on tour practices really hard. And I said, I could go through a list of people who practice. I mean, there aren't too many guys on tour. I'm practicing really hard. So I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, you know, they're working out with trainers. I go, well, Frank Stranahan was working out and was ripped 60 years ago. And Gary Player has been working out like crazy his whole life. And then I said, like, when David Duval was number one in the world, he lost a lot of weight. And he was, like, chiseled. I mean, he had six-pack abs, and he was ripped. And I said, then Rory, for a period, was absolutely ripped. I said, if you ever saw a tiger with a shirt on, he was never ripped. He had triceps, so he looked good in his shirts, but, you know, he wasn't ripped. And this guy goes, geez, you're ruining my story. What's your point? And I said, well, the thing that made Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, I don't see anybody emulate. He goes, what's that? I said, when he was 15 or 16, he went on national TV and told the world that his quest was to break Jack Nicklaus's records for majors. I said, that's (laughs) what made Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. I said, when he said that, What I know about the mind is we could have predicted that Tiger would win somewhere between 12 and 22 majors. We didn't know if he'd break it, come close, but we knew he'd end up in a comfort zone somewhere around there. And I said to this day, I've never heard another player say they wanted to break Jack Nicklaus's records. And I said, at that time, I said, I've never heard anybody even say they wanted to break Tigers. And then I looked at the guy and I said, here's where it gets really interesting it's possible that it was a real motivator for tiger jack nicholas but i said it's possible that tiger woods is a more talented golfer than jack i don't know but it's possible and it's possible that jack's standard was way too low for tiger woods he said what do you mean i said well if jack had won 37 majors i promise you tiger would have 28 by now and i said it's just the way we work as human beings." And I said, it's possible that Jack Standard was way too low for Tiger and it's really held him back. I said, we're never going to know. But I said, the point of the story is you better really pay attention to what you shoot for, because whatever you aim for, you're going to finish somewhere around there. And, you know, like you've got a vision for your junior academy and you watch how your vision will play a huge role in where these kids become as players and people. And it just, it's, it's been that way in coaching for years. Like I've worked with uh, John Calipari for 30 something years. And I mean, he wants to win national championships. He wants to go 40 and zero and one year. I mean, we've won the national championship and several years ago. Now we got the 38 and zero and got beaten in the semis by Wisconsin, by a shot at the buzzer or near the buzzer. And his failure was to go 38 and one. But he's still chasing it. It still excites him. In other words, these uh, all ideas are all dreams are, are your ideas for you and your life. And it's like most people, as they get educated and grow up, they be, start becoming realistic. And I spend my whole life trying to teach people to, that we create our own reality. I said, I don't know what being realistic is. I think being realistic is most people's way of justifying negative thinking. In other words, The next thing they do is say, well, I'm just not that talented. You know, if I had Hal Sutton's talent, man, I would have won a bunch of times on tour. I would have been really good. Like, well, maybe you have as much talent as Hal Sutton, but you don't have his mind or you don't have his attitude or you don't have his heart or whatever. And, or you didn't have his dream. And I mean, that's like, whoa, wait a minute. And I go, well, no, you need to take a look at that. I mean, maybe if Tiger Woods had your attitude, i tell this guy, maybe Tiger Woods wouldn't be any better than you, you know, and that gets people thinking. And it's like, look, I don't want to tell people what their dreams ought to be, but I don't want people to limit their dreams because they're afraid they might not get them all. I said the whole point about the Tiger story is if Tiger fails to break Jack's record, he'll end up the second greatest major champion winner in history. And that isn't that bad. His failure will be better than a lot of people's success. And so that's what people who are trying to be realistic and set realistic goals. I tell people, realistic goal setting was started by a Harvard and Wesleyan University professor who were hired by the Boston Public Schools to go in and help them motivate underachieving inner city kids who had no goals and no direction. And they gave them realistic moderate goals and their goal was like to graduate or to get c minuses so they could get through school and i said what's that got to do with people who got huge dreams and want to be great so i mean it's i mean you think about what you've done with your life it's like how realistic was that when you were six years old um it's you look back and you go it's you know it's pretty unbelievable what you got to do with your life and what you accomplished and what you achieve and but it just happened you happen to have big ideas in your head and somebody else doesn't and I don't mind if they don't but America is the land of opportunity we brag about the American dream so why would you sell yourself short like if you had a high school coach in golf who told you you know hell no matter how hard you practice you're never going to be very good you might be able to play in the high school team, but you never play. In How many people would love that coach? But it's amazing on the same people would hate that coach. They do it to themselves and think they're smart. Like if that's what you learned by going to college and getting educated, but well, you learned all the wrong stuff, you know? And that's what a lot of people learn that I'm not as good as I used to think I was. And so, I mean, with every year of life, you got to get more confident. You have to have bigger ideas, Expand your dreams. Yeah, I, I totally. I was given a fundraiser back in my home down years ago, for the Catholic high school I went to, and someone asked me, "What what was your dream when you were twelve years old?" I said, oh, if I could have ever been the head basketball coach at Mount Saint Joseph Academy, I thought that would be the most awesome thing in the world." And they immediately yelled, "God, would you come back and coach now?" And I went, "No, it's not my dream anymore. You know, I, I've gone way beyond that." And I said, "But at that age, that would have..." Man, I thought that would have been unbelievable. But over time, my dreams changed, and they got bigger and different. And, I mean, there's a side of you. I'm, I'm sure you'd say the same thing. I mean, I mean, there's a side of me that sits back when someone asks me, God, you? it's been unbelievable what you've gotten to do with your life. And I go, yeah, it's beyond my wildest dreams. Um, and you're kind of amazed by it. But on the other hand, you go, but I don't ever think about it a whole lot. You know, <laughs> it's just kind of life, you know, and it's kind of my life, and it's your life, and it's like I keep telling people, look you're born and then you live, and then you die, and everything we're talking about is what are you going to do while you're alive (laughs) because as far as I know, that's the only part we have anything to do with, so I mean let's do everything we can with it and have a ball, and like it's interesting how what you're doing right now and and I guess I'm doing as I think about it um, I tell everybody in golf look Take some time every week to do something for other people. Because one of the problems with pro athletes is you can become so self-absorbed that you spend all of your time and energy thinking about you and your golf game and success. And there's nothing like doing stuff for other people to make you really feel good. And one of the things about being successful is like all these kids in your academy, man, they're going to listen to you. Because you've been successful and you've done some awesome things, that some of those kids are going to start dreaming about being Al Sutton and wanting to do be Al Sutton. And at some point, you're going to talk to them about doing even more than you did. Because that's what happens when people ask, "Are today's athletes better?" I go, "Yeah." <laughs> I mean, like think about what they're getting. Think about a ten-year-old or twelve-year-old kid getting to listen to you and hearing stuff from you that you didn't hear when you were twelve years old. I mean, like just the stuff we're talking about right now. I mean, did you ever hear anybody talk about this when you were 12 or 15 or 20 or 30 maybe? No. Yeah, so I mean, that's why kids get better. You're going to simplify the swing. You're going to simplify everything for them. And it's going to make it believable. And once it's believable, it's achievable. But people got to be able to dare to believe it. And a lot of people are afraid because they're afraid of what other people are going to think if they don't get it. So, I mean, it's like, you know, some people are afraid of themselves. Like, what if I say, I really would like to do this and I don't do it. Oh, I'm going to feel terrible. I'm like, yeah, but the flip side is tremendous joy and satisfaction. You know, you're going to be able to have a ball. You know I mean? It's like, you got a reason for getting up every day. You know, it's like what you're doing with the Academy. I mean, it's why I still do what I do. It's like God; I, it gives me a reason for getting up in the morning with excitement and passion and enthusiasm. And I mean, I I, I can't imagine not having a reason for getting up in the morning. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, and it's got to be something that challenges you a little bit, you know. So every time someone comes to my house, it's interesting. Like if an amateur comes or someone who's an aspiring pro, you know, they like yeah well, I don't want to bother you. You know, I know I really appreciate taking this much time. And I tell him, I look, the way I look at it is you might be my next, next major champion. You might be the next greatest player in the world. I said, I I, I don't care where you've been. Like I'm into where you're going to go. And so that's what keeps me excited. I mean, you know, this kid, we got some big ideas in her head. You know, that's why I have told the Pat Bradley story many times. I said, you yeah. know, she was 31 years old and she comes to me and I, She had won one time on tour, never won an amateur championship in Massachusetts or New Hampshire. She lived on the border, went to Florida International and struggled on tour. And I asked her, Pat, what are your dreams? And she looks at me and says, I want to be the leading money winner at least once. I want to be player of the year at least once. And I want to win all the majors at least once. And I want to be in the Hall of Fame. And I looked at her and said, well, what do you have to do to be in the Hall of Fame for women's golf? And I think at the time it was, you had to win 31 times in three or four majors. And I started grinning and rubbing my hands. And she said, why are you looking at me like that? You think I could do it? And I go, Pat, I have no idea if you can do it, but I'm just so damn excited that you've won one time in 11 years and you still have those kinds of ideas. In the next eight years, she won 31 times in seven majors and came within a lip out of winning the grand slam one year. And I said, man, now there's a gal that really, I said, wow. This is gonna be exciting, you know. This is an impressive gal, you know. And I mean that's what's cool about life is we get to dream up whatever we want to dream up. Now, where'd you get the idea of dreaming up having an academy? Moving it to use I mean, that's just your ideas. Right. You dressed up in your head, and if I know you, you're gonna make this a really great academy. You know, it's like you're gonna have a ball doing it, and those kids are gonna be really lucky, and that's life. case you got any questions yeah
2: i got well you mentioned your book doc um i'm curious this is probably a tough question for you to answer but what's your favorite book that you've written
1: well you know
2: i know you're you're probably not supposed to it's like what's our favorite podcast episode or whatever right like who's my favorite that's mine i mean this is your
1: favorite isn't it
2: huh no, well, I'm saying, uh, well, right, uh, that's right, yeah. Yours is definitely our favorite, absolutely, right. <laughs> but it's yeah. like you asking me which which child's my favorite, right? Like I can't answer that. But I'm just curious if you have a if you have one of them you're most proud of, and then talk about your new one.
1: Well, first of all, you know the the first book that sold really great was Golf Is Not a Game of Perfect, and you know it's like the third best all time selling golf book. So, and I wrote that book for everybody, you know, and then I wrote a lot of books for tournament players. And the minute you write books for tournament players, you limit the sales, the audience isn't as big. Um, But for tournament players, you know, I love those books. But for most people, I love golf, not again, perfect. This book, Make Your Next Shot Your Best Shot is for tournament players and everyday players because everybody has to make your next shot your best shot. Everybody has to learn to stay in the present moment. And a lot of the stuff in this book is for everybody. Um, but, you know, that, when you, when you read a book that ends up being as well-received as that, you're very happy. Um, all of them share the theme that, as human beings, our greatest strength is we have a free will. And you get to choose how you think about yourself. They all have a theme that you have to take personal responsibility for your thoughts and how you approach your life. And they all have a theme of you have to hold yourself accountable for how you think and approach your life. Um, and that comes across in all of my books. Um, but, I mean, when I'm writing them, I like them all. And by the way, I once I'm finished with a book, <laughs> I don't ever go back and reread it. <laughs> you know, um, It's like when I'm done with it, it's done. And, by the way, I tell most of my players, I don't want you to start being in love with psychology and go read every book ever written on the topic of psychology. I want you to let me study it all and reduce it and just do the stuff we figured it's most important. Like when a person leaves my house, you know, we spent two days together and they're going to say, well, I already do this really well. I do this really well. I do this really well. So there's a whole lot of things we talk about that they already do really well. And then there's like three to five things that, wow, I got to do this a lot better. I got to do this a lot better. I got to do that a lot better. So, I mean, it's individualized in that regard. And that's what I want them to focus on. And no more than like, if you guys are giving your academy swim lessons, I don't want the kids to start reading every book on the golf Swim or reading every magazine on it or watching everything on YouTube on it. It's like, no kids, let's learn how to do this. I mean, but that takes trust. And so building a trusting relationship is a big deal that's why to this day i'd say 99 percent of the time i still drive to the airport and pick up my clients bring them back to have them stay at my home because you're building a relationship and you know a lot of times it means something to people like oh god i i didn't know you were going to pick me up at the airport people ask me is it a bit of an inconvenience to drive to the airport yeah especially when flights are really late or delayed but it's 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 a way of telling people I care enough about you to do this because it's important. And so, I mean, like with your kids and your program, it's you got to build a relationship and you got to build trust and they got to really believe that you care enough about them to do whatever you need to do to help them become whatever their dreams are. And, you know, so, I mean, but other than that, I mean, I'd say a lot of tour players, a lot of them, <laughs> you know, they like Gulf is not a game of perfect, but they've enjoyed a lot of the other books. Uh, a lot of them really like the putting out of your mind book. And it found that they can apply that to every part of their game, not just their putting um, in the world of business. I wrote a book. Uh, Life is not a game of perfect where I really talked about the concept that, you know, real talent is inside of people and you know, that did quite nicely. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I enjoyed them all when I was writing, um, because all I'm doing is sharing with the public who doesn't get to spend one on one money. I mean, we're just sharing with them what we've learned from people who are winning on tour and doing great things and just kind of sharing it with them. And as Hal said, I've been spending my whole life, putting it in a language that they can understand. I mean, there's a lot of psychological jargon, um, that some people like to make it a language that other people can't understand, so they're impressed with how smart you are. I wanted to impress people with helping them play better. That's, that's all I really care about. Um, I don't know why I've been in love with sport. Um, uh, I just have been since by fifth grade. Man, I was in love with sport and sport performance. I loved coaches. I always knew I was going to be a coach. Uh, you know, if I wasn't going to be an athlete. At that level, and I just didn't know I was going to coach only this part of it, you know. So I don't do X's and O's anymore. I, I don't recruit anymore. Um, I've never walked up to a player and told them they ought to come and see me because I think they have to be ready. Um, but I've had a lot of fun, and I had fun doing all the books. Um, and it's amazing how many people in other sports—I mean, basketball, football, baseball, a lot of uh, equestrian show jumpers. Um, they find that they use those books to help them in their sport, and they find it very easy to replace golf with whatever sport they're in. You know, so it's been satisfying. Well, Bob,
0: I asked you earlier, was there a common denominator in greatness? So I'm going to give it to you because you have been exhibiting it the entire time on this. It's passion passion for your dream and continuing to live it you have been so passionate about what you've been talking about uh it brings back fond memories of staying at your house and all the conversations that we had together so uh we really appreciate you being on be the right uh club today i hardly could say it again how about that
1: (laughs) but uh, i really appreciate you having me on and i really appreciated you years ago, trusted in me enough to come and spend time with me. And it means a lot to me because, you know, I know when you're trying to do great things, you've got to trust somebody. Um, and if you trust the wrong stuff, it can really hurt you. And so, I mean, I've always valued it, appreciate it. And I'm, I don't know why I still love doing this. I don't know why or where the passion comes, but I, I just love helping people see how good they can get. And, what turns me on i don't know why but it does well it's it's certainly obvious so thanks
0: for being on and uh good luck with the new book i'm sure it'll do fantastic
1: well, good seeing you you look great take care
0: Thanks, you thank you all
1: right chase appreciate it mom Be the right club today, yes!